as you're uh, flipping over to Psalm 51, you can also uh, turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12 uh, to help us get the, the full understanding of Psalm 51. So um, if you see in Psalm 51, at the very beginning in what's called the superscription, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read Psalm 51, uh, but I'm going to read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 to us before we go into Psalm 51 uh, so that we can kind of understand from the scriptures everything that had gone down just in case you have forgotten or aren't sure. So uh, you can stay seated because I'm going to read a lot. So 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then we'll read Psalm 51. So starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year of the time when kings go out into battle, but Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This is key because kings were supposed to go fight and David didn't go fight. That was the first thing that led to Everything that's going to happen. It remained late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived, and she told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent to word to Joab, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him uh, a present from the king. And, but Uriah slept on the door of his own house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go into his own house. When they told David, Uriah did not go into his house, David said to Uriah, Why have you come from, from a journey? Why did you not go into your house? Uriah said to David, uh, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go into my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and t- tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and the next day, uh, th- that day and the next, and then David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to lie on his couch with the servant of the Lord, but he did not go into his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah On the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back for him that he can be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew um, the valiant men were, were the valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among uh, the people fell. Uriah the Hittite died. 11 it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased him. So let's go into 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. 
he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and his children. And he used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to kill him, or that had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add, it to, I would add much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. But for you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also uh, put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed... You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Psalm 51. So if you see, by the way, um, in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. That, that little verse there in Psalm 13. What we're going to do now is when we look at Psalm 51, this is an expansion of that entire verse. Whenever he says, I have sinned, Psalm 51 is David's full confession of what he just did. So if you want to, you can stand with me, but I'm going to read Psalm 51 now in its entirety. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came, went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sinned, and my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners to return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then 
you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can understand it. We pray that as we look at it this morning, you would be gracious by the power of the Spirit to give us understanding into confession, repentance, and that we would be people that love you and want to practice confession, repentance in our own lives. Um, Break us like you broke David uh, for sin in our lives, so that people send Nathan to us like you sent Nathan to David, um, so that people can help us see the things in our lives. We love you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So as we look at Psalm 51, usually we kind of take, you know, like a section one through three and a four through six and a seven through ten and like that. Uh, That's not really how David's confession goes, the way I see it in in, in Psalm 51. Um, If you are more scatterbrained, then Psalm 51 is going to feel good for you because just think about taking a rock and just throwing it across the water and how it skips. That's what David's doing with his points. Point one, he throws it and he skips it across uh, like... Well, it's just verse one, but then point two is like two seven ten, and then he switches for point three, and it's like three five six, and then point four nine four or four nine eleven. So like he's 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 just confessing because he's distraught about himself, and so there's six marks of repentance that he's going to cover in in, in Psalm fifty one, but they're kind of skipping verses because you know whenever you're confessing sin, you're not necessarily doing it in in, in perfect order unless you're type A. Um, and then you have to do everything in order. Um, so before we, we go into this, uh, I wanted to read Calvin, because Calvin in his intro to Psalm 51 gives us a, uh, a really good understanding and caution to think about. So uh, really a lot of this psalm that we're going to be going through is, uh, although Calvin doesn't give points or anything, he just co- comments. Um, so, uh, but he, he gives a lot of good insights into Psalm 51. This is what he says. Um, when Nathan the prophet came to David, express mention is made of the prophet having come before the psalm was written, proving as it does the deep lethargy into which David must have fallen. So he's, he's very uh, lazy towards following the Lord. Um, it was a wonderful circumstance that so great a man, one so eminently gifted with the Spirit, should have continued in this dangerous state for upwards of a year. So David could have been in this state for a year. Of sin, Nothing but satanic influence could account for that stupor of conscience which could lead him to despise or slight divine judgment in which he had curred. It serves additionally to mark the supineness into which he had fallen that he seems to have no compunction for his sin till the prophet came to him. He, he had no understanding of what was going on until Nathan came. Uh, here we have a striking illustration at the same time of the mercy of God in sending the prophet to reclaim him when he had wondered. By that sinful step... He had placed himself at a distance from God, and the divine goodness was signally displayed in contemplating his restoration. Re- restoration. We do not imagine that David, during this interval, was so wholly deprived of the sense of religion as to no longer acknowledge the supremacy of the divine being. So as he was in this state, it wasn't like he was completely fallen away and had nothing to do with God. Here's where it gets a little interesting and probably reflects a lot like us. We have sin in our life. And we're following the Lord, but there's just stuff we're completely unaware of. This is what he says. 
In all probability, he, can pr- he continued to pray daily, engaged in the acts of divine worship, and aimed at conforming his life into the law of God. There is no reason to think that grace was wholly extinct in David's heart, but only that he was possessed by a spirit of infatuation upon one particular point and labored until fatal insensibility as to his present exposure of the divine grace. Grace, whatever it sparks, it might emit in other directions, was smothered, so to speak, in this. We may, and here's the caution for us, we may be well such a holy prophet, so excellent of king, should sunk into this condition that the sense of religion was not altogether extinguished in his mind as proved by the manner in which by the manner in which he was affected immediately upon receiving the prophet's reproof. So since he still had a manner in which he was walking with the Lord, when Nathan the prophet said something to him, he accepted it right away. That's, that's God's grace and also proof that David still, in a sense, was like walking with God in some way. He just had this huge outlying thing that he was absolutely blind to. Um, had, been, had that been the case, he could have not cried out as he did, I've sinned against the Lord, nor would he have so readily um, submitted himself in the spirit of meekness to admiration and cor- admonition and correction. In this respect, David has set an example to all to as such to, when they've sinned against God, teaching them that the duty of humbly complying with the calls of repentance, which may be addressed to them by his servants, instead of remaining under sin, they may be surprised by the final vengeance of heaven. So uh, we can see that David was walking with the Lord, um, even though he had this major sin because of the immediate response that he had when Nathan came to him. So he wasn't walking with the Lord as holy and as fully as he could be, but likely he was, and he just had this huge blind spot. So Psalm 51 is majorly, mostly about repentance. So what is repentance? I've got a few theologians that will give us some good understandings of what repentance is. Tom Askell says, what repentance is, turning from sin to God with a commitment to pursue a life of obedience to his will. What convinces a sinner to repent? Not only a sense of his sinfulness of his sin, but also the recognition that because of Christ, God is full of mercy to repentant sinners. Spurgeon, to repent does not mean to change To repent does mean to change of mind, but then it is a thorough change of the understanding of all that is in the mind, so that it includes an illumination, an illumination of the Holy Spirit, and I think it includes a discovery of iniquity and a hatred of it, so you know your sin and you hate it, without which there can be any genuine repentance. We must not, I think, undervalue repentance. It is a blessed grace of the Holy Spirit and is absolutely necessary unto salvation. A.W. Pink True repentance issues from a realization in the heart wrought therein in the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of sin, the awfulness of ignoring the claims of God and defying God's authority. It is, therefore, a holy horror, hatred of sin, a deep sorrow for it, and an acknowledgement of it before God, and a complete heart forsaking of it. Not until this done is done will God pardon us. J.I. Packer, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know to yourself to as much as you know of your God and as our knowledge of these three points so our practice of repentance must be enlarged. And finally, John Piper, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise 
and of all of our obedience. So if you kind of put all these together, you're seeing there is a holy hatred of sin. There's a deep desire to want to change. There's an understanding that you need to change and until all that and confessing. But then also, as Piper says, it's also seeing that it's beautiful and wonderful and God is worthy to give all of your praise and obedience to it. So acknowledgement that you also should be a worshiper of God. And so as we look at Psalm 51 today, um, these words are for all of us in this room, whether we're believers or unbelievers. All of us need to repent continually. If you're a Christian, the mark of a true Christian is one of ongoing repentance throughout your life. And without this, uh, we wouldn't be walking in sanctification properly. But for those that are not believers, the only thing you need to think about today is repentance. The only thing that needs to cross your mind right now is that you will spend an eternity separated from God. The wrath of God will be on you and it will be horrible. And you will beg for mercy and never receive it the entire time and all of eternity, receive his unending wrath that we all justly are due. So the only call that you have on your life today is to repent. So as we look at the repentance of David, you should deeply desire that the Holy Spirit would come and convict you as he has David, and that you would repent. Um, And so um, whatever sin it is that you're dealing with, as we saw in Psalm 19 uh, a few weeks ago, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. The things that we know that we're going to do, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so we don't want to have a hard heart towards the Lord. We want to know our sin and confess it this morning, as David did with Bathsheba whenever he killed your look over kind of the marks Bathsheba. So the first thing that we're going to see uh, as we look over kind of the marks of repentance, and I think there is a, there's an order to this as well. As I said, I've kind of skipped through showing you uh, the, what seems to be kind of the movement of David's heart, uh, but I think this order is kind of like from beginning to end what true repentance looks like. So number one, first mark of repentance is from verse one. You can go ahead and put it up. It's, there is an outcry For the mercy and steadfast love of of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so there's there's an outcry that David has here whenever he realizes that he's a sinner. That the only place and the only fount that he can go to is the steadfast love of God. Usually in a prayer form, uh, this is an earnest praying for pardon. Have mercy on me, O God. After Nathan had come to him, he cries out, to the Lord. Um, notice the appeal. It's, it's according to what? It's according to God's abundant mercy. Have mercy on, mo- on me, O Lord. Here it is. Here's the appeal. According to um, your mercy and your steadfast love. And so all of us are totally dependent upon God's mercy and his steadfast love. Without it, we'd be totally undone. It is the place that we should appeal to. David recognizes this and begins to have this outcry. We Cry out to the Lord for steadfast mercy. Calvin says there is an implied antithesis between the greatness of the mercy sought for and the greatness of the transgression which required the outcry. And when we get to this realization that there's a greatness between the mercies that we're seeking, God is overabundant in mercies and the wretchedness of which we have sinned when we have recognized this as whenever the outcry begins. So the first mark of repentance is we should notice and see within us uh, a deep stirring within our heart that we want to outcry to the Lord for mercy and steadfast love. And whenever we do that, um, what we want in that outcry is number two. There's a desire 
to be made clean and pure. Their desire to be made clean and pure. And you can see that in 2, 7, 9. This is kind of the, uh, the rock skipping. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So we can see there where he wants to be made clean. You can see it again in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. There's another desire to be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then even in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. You can see over and over what he wants is to be, uh, his, to be made clean and for a sin to be blotted out. And so uh, in verse 2 when he says, wash me, thir- wash me, um, multiply, meaning David felt the stain of his sin to be so deep that in his mind it felt like it required multiple washings and just in order for him to be clean. Now, God doesn't need multiple washings to cleanse us. But David was so uh, aware of how dirty his sin had made him that he said that. God, uh, Calvin says, not that God can't cleanse him thoroughly in one wash, but to show the earnestness of which David feels his sin, he says, wash me thoroughly, as in multiply to wash me. Calvin goes on to say, not as if God could experience any difficulty in cleansing the worst sinner, But the more aggravated the man's sin is, the more earnestly, naturally are his desires to be delivered from the terrors of his conscience. And so we see here a desire to be made clean. In verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop represents being purged from all of our sins. And this is only attained for us on the cross of Christ by Jesus. And so because Jesus went on our behalf, to the cross. We can beg for us to be purged from all of our sins. Calvin says the mention which is here made of purging with hyssop and of washing of sprinkling teaches us that in all of our prayers for the pardon of sin to have our thoughts directed to the great sacrifice by which Christ has reconciled us to God. So as, as he screams out to purge me with hyssop it pushes us to say like David we want that same thing and we recognize that it only comes from Jesus Christ. Create in me, in verse 10, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Um, this creating a, a new heart is where he's realizing that repentance, even the act of repentance, is a gift from God. That if we uh, are granted repentance, that the Lord has actually granted that to us. Second Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 25, where it writes, Paul writes, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so everything that's going on in David uh, where he desires to be made clean is a mark of true repentance after there's an outcry. But in that um, desire that he has uh, where he wants to be made clean, it's, it's, that's also a gift from God. So um, if you are ongoing in your sin, you should, number one, outcry to the Lord, scream out to him that he would show you his mercy and his love. And the second thing is that you, whenever you do this, the words in which you would use would be, make me clean, God. Make me clean because the terrors of my conscience, as Calvin would say, are weighing me down in such a way that walking forward through life is just too arduous. I, I can't do it anymore. I can't sleep at night or whatever the, the effects of those things are on you. And if you don't have any of that, pray that you would have that so that you would repent. And then there's a desire to be clean, be clean and realize that all of it is a mercy from the Lord, that he's the only one that can make us clean. 
And so David is recognizing that he is the only one that can do it, and he wants to be made clean. And then there's the acknowledgement. So um, he cries out, and acknowledgement is the outcry to God, desiring to be made clean, where he uses his words of confession or repentance. Now, he doesn't just want to be made clean, but he's going to acknowledge his sin in this moment. So number three is uh, once he wants to be clean, then he has to acknowledge, I don't want to be clean, but here's why. There's an acknowledgement, a confession, repentance of sin. And that you are a sinner. You can see that in three. You can see that in five and six. For I aware. Now, it's because of Nathan the prophet who came to him. But he's not just praying uh, generically. Well, I'm sure there's some things that I've done. He knows what he's done. I know my transgressions. Five and six. Behold, I was brought forth. So he's not just recognizing that he's a sinner and that he's committed sins uh, individually, but he's also recognizing that he's in the line of Adam, where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. Um, I'm going to get to verse 6 in just a second. So let's take 3, 4. I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Calvin says, As if he had said, I confess and acknowledge that I have sinned. What formerly shamefully and foolishly excused and extenuated, I now therefore Acknowledge before you, God, and before your prophet and the whole church in this penitential psalm. The verb is future. I will know or acknowledge, which means, so when he says, for I know my transgressions, this is written in the future tense. So what he's really saying is, um, Calvin says, he's intimating that he will continue to retain a humble sense of his guilt. So I recognize that I have done this, And I'm not just doing it as a one time and then I can do it again and I can do it again and I come to you again. I recognize that I have done this. And since I recognize that I have done this, it will remain in my mind as something that I've done so that I actually won't continually just come to you, you know, every four days with the same thing over and over. I I know continually my sins and it will remain in my mind so that this particular transgression is done. I don't want to do it anymore, Lord. And so... um, The application means this. Confessing and repenting of our sin means the sin should be vanquished from our future. We don't want to do it anymore. And then he says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Um, Our sin should cause within us terribly, uh, a terrible discomfort. Mainly because uh, it's not awkward with someone else, which that is it, but because We have sinned against God. We have offended a holy God. And we should find no rest until we've obtained forgiveness from him and found mercy from the Lord. Calvin writes on confession and repentance. If we really desire absolution from his hand, we must do more than confess our guilt in words. We must institute a rigid and formidable scrutiny into the character of our transgressions. Meaning, Know yourself, know why you are doing this so that you can put it to death. If you really want to have put to death sin in your life, acknowledge that we are sinners, not just that we have sinned. And that helps us when we get to verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So Calvin is recognizing when he 
Calvin recognized this in David when he said, all of us are born in iniquity and are absolute destitute of all spiritual good. So there's this idea of kind of the original sin that we're born in in Adam versus kind of the Pelagian view, which is you're kind of born okay and you fall into sin eventually. It was, it was, a, her- it was a heresy from the early church. Um, so sin comes us, to us from Adam. So we don't just need to confess, as David does, just our sin, that we have sin that we're doing, but also, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, that we are sinners, that we are corrupt completely and holy and all the way totally sin- sinful. As he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. We're, we're not just people committing sins. We're sinners born in sin. And so we don't just need to be forgiven of the individual sins that we've been committing. We need our entire nature to be forgiven and to be given a new heart to be given a new nature. This is why you hear the new creation language or the new heart language um, because we also need to be forgiven of our sin um, or a sinful state that we're in. And so sin comes to us from Adam and uh, we are by nature corrupt. We are, as Calvin says, we are from birth born totally depraved. And so as we confess, we don't just recognize that we've committed individual sins, but that we are sinners. And then it says this, behold, verse 6, you delight in truth. You delight in truth. Um, One of the things that I've noticed as a pastor whenever people have sinned against each other uh, and it's time to tell each other that they've sinned against each other, they don't always tell each other everything mostly because they don't want to hurt the other person. They want to tell them what they should tell them because they know that they should. They have ongoing, tell them all of it because they know all of it will hurt their feelings the most. And so they need to tell them to get the weight off their shoulders, but sometimes they have to tell. Um, Behold, you delight in truth means, I think, you confess it all. You just tell it all. There's no better place in confession than to tell it all because what you don't want is to come back later and say, I didn't tell you at all. I need to tell it all. And why half tell to the Lord? He already knows it all. You really confess all of your sin. You really confess all of Behold, you delight, God delights in truth. We want to say all of it. Um, and in, your, in the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So if we're going to make an application here on on number three, that there's acknowledgement of confession, repentance. Uh, confession and repentance can be maybe the most difficult part of this kind of six marks, uh, especially when we struggle with pride, overcoming pride, even bringing yourself to confession, but then even once you're doing it, to actually confess it all rather than just half of it because you don't want to fully hurt them. You just want to ha- kind of half hurt them. But uh, we have to overcome this. It's deadly, and there's just no other way to say it. If you cannot admit and confess your sin, it will be a most difficult life. It will be a most difficult life if you can't fully confess your sin, not just to whoever you, whomever you've sinned against, but to the Lord. So number three, there's an acknowledgement of confession and repentance, and maybe you want to write the word full. There's a full acknowledgement and full confession. Um, so that's number three, which brings us to an interesting verse, verse Four, I think also 9 and 11, but you can see it here. Um, he continually wants to be forgiven. But there is a realization that our sin is primarily, and I'm just 
putting a lot of heavy emphasis on the word primarily because it's secondarily against each other for sure. Primarily against God, against you. But that's not how David writes it. He just writes it against you and you only, which is very interesting. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words. So there's a realization that our sin is primarily against God. When you read verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned, you could probably say, I bet Uriah doesn't think that. I bet Uriah's dad doesn't think that. I bet Bathsheba doesn't think that. Um, Why is David not recognizing that he sinned against other people and he's just recognizing the sin against the Lord? And I think that the way I've written number four is the answer. Um, He's realizing that right here in this moment, he wants to take his eyes and his whole soul and direct them towards God and have the vertical forgiveness so that he can begin the horizontal. And so I don't, I don't necessarily think that David really thinks that he hasn't sinned against Uriah. Um, that's the whole point. Nathan came to him and said, you've sinned against Uriah. Um, and so he didn't say, you sinned against God. He said, you sinned against Uriah and the Lord. Um, and so... What I think is going on here is that David is directing his eyes and his entire soul towards the Lord God first and primarily. And so in our repentance, we should do the same. We should recognize that we've sinned against God and that we want that relationship to be restored again. There's a, there's a briskness or a coldness about it, and we don't want that. It's brought back. Um, Piper always tells this little story this is off the cuff, but I think it's really apropos. He always tells this little story of, it's an illustration. I wake up in the morning and I say some mean things to my wife, uh, you know, uh, offhand. The laundry's not folded or something. I don't know. It, it, he, I can't remember the exact thing. He says something that's, that's kind of uh, mean to his wife. And so uh, 15 minutes later, they're both in the kitchen and she's at the sink and he's over on the other side of the kitchen and there's ice in the air. And so... Um, why, why does he go to his wife and say he's sorry? Because he wants a good breakfast that day? Because he hopes that later on that night they can uh, come back together? The main reason he goes to his wife is because he wants to restore the relationship. They love each other and they want the relationship restored. It's not just so that she can fulfill duties as a wife and he can fulfill duties as a husband that God desires for them to do. But instead, the main reason is we want fellowship back together again. I miss her as my wife and I want her back in my life. And so I must confess and repent. I, so, so the same things with the Lord. Fellowship has been broken here. And so against you and you only have I sinned, he, he doesn't just want to have God's favor back so that Israel can win and, and you know, keep going and he can have a good kingdom. He, need, he wants fellowship back with God. That's why David is a man after God's own heart. And so when we realize that our sins primarily are against God, it's because you want the fellowship back with God. You miss it because of your sin and you want it restored. That's why we see in verse 9 when it says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Um, 
He doesn't want God to see his sin anymore because he wants to have a whole relationship with God. In verse 11, you can see, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I was in your presence and my sin has felt like it's removed me and I want to be back in your presence. Why? Because that's where fellowship lies. He wants to be back in relationship with God. Devastation as believers in Jesus should be upon us if we're not in right relationship with God. Calvin says this, and I think it's super helpful for us. He says, many learned men have inconsiderately drawn to the opinion that the elect by falling into sin may lose the spirit altogether and be alienated from God. So when you read this, take not your Holy Spirit from me, it is not a proof text that says Christians can lose the Holy Spirit and therefore lose their salvation. It's not what it is. It's not at all what it is. So Calvin goes on to say, The contrary is clearly declared by Peter, who tells us by the word which we are born again into an incorruptible seed. Since you've been born again, if not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so what we want then, therefore, as believers who cannot lose their salvation, is for our relationship to be restored. So when we've confessed our sin, we also realize that our sin is primarily against him. And... This thing where we, where we read in verse 8 becomes true, where it says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. gladness. This is interesting language, right? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Calvin says, when he speaks of his bones being broken, he alludes to the extreme grief and overwhelming distress that he had been reduced to. The joy of the Lord would reanimate his soul and this joy as he describes as to be obtained by hearing it for the word of God alone does this which can first and effectually cheer the heart of any sinner. There is no truer solid peace to be enjoyed in the world except in the way of reposing in the promises of God or resting in the promises of God. The only true joy we can have is resting in those promises of God. And so let the bones rejoice that you've broken Confession and repentance certainly feels this way, but it leads to, as verse 8 tells us, joy and gladness, rejoicing. I mean, if you've experienced this firsthand, you know what I'm saying. It stinks to have to go through confession and repentance. Oh, it's awful, right? But once you've done it before the Lord and whomever you've sinned against, there is joy after this. You know that you're walking with the Lord and there's joy And there's gladness in your heart that you don't have this weight on your shoulders anymore. There's joy. Which should lead you, whenever you are seeing these little hints of joy and gladness, David's going to give us, this is where we joy, we, we praise the Lord. There is praise to God for his forgiveness of your sin. When you've been forgiven of your sin, it should make you want to stand and sing or However you sing. If you're not a stander and singer, you go in your room by yourself, close the door, someone hears you. You don't feel like you can sing in key and you sing out however you want. Like it should cause us to want to praise the Lord that he has forgiven us. You can see it in verse 12, 14, 15. Restore to me the joy of your salvation to hold me with a willing spirit. So he wants the joy of his salvation restored and then he even says it even more outright in 14 and 15, deliver me from the blood guiltness of God, of God of my salvation. Here it is. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's just outright saying that singing should follow once these things have happened. Um, 
at least if you just want to say it, worship in your heart. There should be ongoing joy and worship in your heart that the Lord has granted to you repentance, that you've gone through repentance, that, and that he has repented, that you have repented, and that you've been restored back in fellowship. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's a realization that God restores joy, but this is only after confession of sin happens. The moment that we hear our sin is forgiven is a joyous day. It's an absolute joyous day. Calvin says it this way, he, David, cannot dismiss his grief of mind until he has obtained peace with God. Once he's obtained peace with God, the grief of his mind is gone. Think about 14 and 15. 14 and 15, does this describe you when you have repented of your sin? My tongue will sing aloud. My mouth will declare your praise. When you've been forgiven of your sin, does your mouth open and sing out to the Lord? Does the Holy Spirit direct you to sing his praises? Calvin says we cannot fail to be silent in God's praise when he's forgiven us. So that's number five. Well, there's one more. And uh, I'm not sure if this is most important, but I think it's the hardest. I think it's the hardest thing to convince yourself of is when you've messed up big time that the Lord still wants to use you. That you're not done. There's a song, there's a new song out right now. If I'm not dead, he's not done. That's one of the little lines. And if I'm not dead, he's not done. And it's true. It is true. As long as we're still alive and we're in Christ, he still wants to use us. Now, sin can have effects, consequences. I'm not discounting that. But he still wants to use you. He still wants you to do the ministry of reconciliation. What that looks like, I don't know. But we can see that he still wants to use us. Number six, true restoration. Uh, that's random. That S shouldn't be there. That's just supposed to say is. True restoration is, therefore, believed when we begin the work of ministry again. I would say the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. Calling others to trust in God. And you want to continue in his work. You want to continue in his work. You can see that in some of these verses here. Look at verse 13. Notice this boldness, right? I mean, think of everything that we know right now about David and look at verse 13. When you've forgiven me, then I will teach transgression. Old. I've messed up big time, but when you've forgiven me and restored me, I'm going to go teach others what I just went through. That's, that's pretty bold and awesome and something that we all should think to ourselves, I can still do the work of the Lord. It may look different than what it always has been. I'm not saying there's not consequences. But, oh, awesome. True restoration is therefore believed when we begin the work of ministry again. We've all been called to the Great Commission. If you're in Christ, you're called to the Great Commission. That's not just the pastors or the people that haven't sinned, because we've all sinned. Every one of us are called to do this. You can even see it as he turns towards the end of the psalm. Whenever he's, in verse 18 here, the prayer switches. In verse 18, um, where he starts uh, praying not just for himself, but on behalf of God's people now in 18 and 19. So he's assuming back this role of king. But let's look at 13. Um, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And this is, this is remarkable because there seemingly is no shame now. There seemingly is no shame of David. 
if there's something that the Lord wants us to realize when we've been forgiven of our sin, is that we're not just being forgiven of our sin, but we've been forgiven of the shame of that sin. So much so that he's willing to go call others to repentance. And our first thought is that when we've blown it, that we're in no position to call others to repent. But in God's economy, once we confessed our sin, we've been cleansed. We're actually in the best place to start calling others to repentance because we can speak firsthand on the great, unbelievable mercies of God. So don't let guilt and shame of your past keep you from being used by God to call others to Jesus. And then, as I said in verse 18, 9, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Bulls will be offered on your altar. So David moves from praying for himself now on behalf of God's people. He's acting as God's king again. Although he always was. We've already said he was. And so the application is this. I wrote it out because I want to make sure I say it exactly the way I wrote it. I know that walking through confession and repentance can be extremely difficult. And sometimes we can want to punish ourselves with more pain or just inactiveness. We can choose to um, spiritually just demote ourselves totally out of the service for God because we don't feel like we are worthy to do anything. Um, For seasons, that might be needed because there can be, but on the whole, all of us need to remember that if we're in Christ, we are called to fulfill the Great Commission because we're all called to be ministers of reconciliation and should always continue in the work of ministry, calling sinners to repentance in Jesus. And so wherever you are in your life, spiritually, if you're in Christ, when you've gone through these marks of repentance, remember that the Lord wants you, wants you to do the work of ministry. That's awesome. That should get you pumped up. So how do we uh, conclude with Psalm 51? How does it point us to Jesus? Well, because... All forgiveness we receive is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's pretty straightforward how it does this. Um, So how can we sing? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Um, We need a broken and contrite heart. Uh, God has given us this. And what we need is this broken and contrite heart. And that will cause us to fall face down at the feet of Jesus and plead for mercy. Because when we do that, here's the good news. When we fall down face down at the feet of Jesus and plead for mercy, he forgives. He forgives. 1 John 1, 9. Do you know it? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David knew that before it was written. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 on repentance says, as it is, I rejoice not that you were grieved, but you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and without regret, whereas worldly grief produces just death. So if you're feeling repentant, then this is from the Lord. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you and what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what punishment that was put on Christ, obviously. God is calling all of us continually back to himself. If we're believers, a life of ongoing repentance. If we are uh, not believers, 
Repent of all your sin right now and trust in Jesus. Cry out for mercy, be made clean, confess and repent, desire his fellowship again, worship Jesus, and then start walking on the path of ministry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy that you've given to us in Christ. We thank you that this example of David, where he has um, repented of his sin, is put before us in Psalm 51 because we can see uh, that mercy and forgiveness is being extended to us in Jesus Christ as well. And so I pray for all of us that as we look at this, that we would be heartened because of it, not discouraged, and that we would see the unbelievable uh, forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ. And that, God, um, you would work mightily in our hearts and that we would boldly walk forward um, wanting to let other people know of this great forgiveness that's been given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.